You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and my guest today is journalist Andrew Ross Sorkin, a financial columnist for The New York Times, its chief mergers and acquisitions reporter, and the founding editor of DealBook, an online daily financial report published by The Times, for which he also writes a weekly column of the same name. Mr. Sorkin's expertise also has him appearing quite frequently on our television screens, particularly as he co-anchors CNBC's Morning Squawk Box. His now updated Penguin book about this nation's near-catastrophic banking crisis at the end of the Bush administration, Too Big to Fail, has become an American classic. With its subtitle, the inside story of how Wall Street and Washington fought to save the financial system and themselves, Too Big to Fail has, of course, been parodied as Too Big to Jail, which the other month was the theme of an Andrew Sorkin dealbook column in which my guest wrote, putting aside the important matter of whether our banks are too big to fail, there is a more pressing and difficult question that needs to be answered here and now. Do we want to indict corporations? And is it effective? This, of course, was all occasioned by something United States Attorney General Eric Holder had just told the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that Andrew Sorkin made read like an Obama administration secret revealed for the first time. And so I want to ask my guest, just what was this admission? Well, Eric Holder, who I actually just saw this weekend as it happened, he Was said, he happy with you? I'm not so sure about that. Um, I think that he disagreed quite vehemently with that column. Uh, but we had a nice cordial conversation, and we're actually hoping to talk to each other in a week, so we'll see. Um, but he revealed for the first time in, I thought, a very surprising way. He said it matter-of-factly, and frankly, most of the newspapers didn't pick it up at the time, where he said, look, we sometimes can't go after these big banks because we believe that they are too big to fail. And the implications of what that means for prosecuting individuals on Wall Street and, frankly, in corporate America, uh, on a more broader scale are quite meaningful. And, and, and the implications that we can or cannot hold people accountable on a criminal basis in the corporate world, I think, is a huge question. And I think it's a question that ever since the financial crisis and before, but has become an acute issue post-financial crisis. You know, wherever I go, people say, why have we not put somebody in jail? Why, why is there no Ken Lay, you remember Ken Lay from Enron during that period, or, or Dennis Kozlowski from, from Tyco with his famous $6,000 shower curtain. What, you know, there is no poster boy, per se, for this financial crisis in the context that you can say, that guy was held accountable and he went to jail. And to the degree that there are people out there watching this program and, 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 and in the broader country who say to themselves, I can't trust the system unless I see some form of accountability, that's a huge challenge. 
But of course, you weren't in what you wrote, or uh, I gather now, totally unsympathetic with the no, Attorney no, no. General's position. I, I'm, I'm not unsympathetic. You just uh, say it was a secret up until now. Well, because he'd never, he, it, it had never been said aloud. Uh, it had been implied in private conversations, off-the-record and background conversations that uh, government and regulators would have with reporters. You, you would hear it's very tough to prosecute. The implications are very difficult. For example, if we decide that we are going to go after the CEO of so-and-so bank, could we topple the bank? What happens if we topple the bank? If we are actually, and it's not, by the way, just going after the CEO. This is the more important part. It's going after the bank. Are we going to indict the entire institution? Are we going to say that, make it up, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, whomever, we're going to indict the entire bank and effectively, does that mean we therefore put them out of business? And if we put them out of business, what happens to the markets? Because everybody says, we saw what happened when Lehman Brothers went out of business and it was a domino effect across the board. So could the government, could Eric Holder or whomever is in power and position to do this, indict a bank? That's the question. So we now appoint you attorney general or we make you right. president of the United States because the buck has to stop there, not with the attorney general. What would you do? So it's a very complicated issue. And where I come out in the column and where I've come out, and it's taken me a long time to get there, and it's not a popular, uh, it's not a popular view. I should tell you my mother disagrees with me. <laughs> um, make them pay, she says. She says make them pay. I say make the individuals pay. I say the concept of indicting an institution, a, a, a company, sounds good in theory, but actually doesn't mean much except perhaps for the benefit of the headline. I'm someone who generally believes that we talk about banks and institutions and corporations as these big uh, behemoths, uh, but we don't realize ultimately, and it's what Too Big to Fail is about, it's about people. Corporations don't make decisions, people make decisions. Now, there are corporations that have lots of bad people in them. There are corporations that uh, potentially uh, have, have, a, have a, a, an insidious culture, and, and, and that makes this even more complicated. But ultimately, for my money, I would be focusing on looking at individuals and saying, did you do the right thing or did you do the wrong thing? And if you did the wrong thing, we need to hold them accountable. The problem with trying to quote-unquote, indict an institution. The, the problem with indicting a, a Goldman Sachs or a, a, a Citigroup as an entire company is that Eric Holder, for better or worse, is actually right. If we put the company out of business, two things happen. One is it is possible that we do create a run on the bank, meaning we create a, a systemic risk to the system. And that's a whole larger question about too big to fail more generally. But the other piece of it, and you know, I mentioned Ken Lay before, when you go back and look at Enron, Enron was indicted. Thousands of people lost their job. Now you could say the, the company was crooked and you could say that there were individuals who were responsible for it being crooked. But I don't suspect that all, you know, however many thousand people lost their job, tens of thousands in this case with Arthur Anderson as well. Um, I don't believe all of them were guilty. And therefore, I think for the greater good, you have to say to yourself, 
Let's be, let's be specific. We'll pick out the people that we think there's a problem with. And on the flip side, we will try to leave whatever le left is as intact as we can. Again, not the most popular view, depending on how you come to it. Well, aside from your mother's point of view, uh, Andrew, when you do the indictment that you want to have done, or you would choose, you're going to indict not just the chairman, CEO, but mm -hmm. the chairman and or the CEO yes. and a few others. Mm -hmm. What happens to the stock price the next day, in all honesty? You've, you've said you're not indicting the corporation, just the people we identify as the leadership of the corporation. Well, look, there's no question that, that the day and the moment that anybody is indicted related to any criminal activity in a business, the business takes a hit. And there's no question the stock uh, takes a hit. There's no question the shareholders wake up in the morning and they are unhappy as well. But on the flip side, you could argue that the shareholders were beneficiaries when the people at the top were committing whatever potential crime they might have been committing. So it's, it's a two-way street. My view is the shareholders are along for the ride either way. I, I'm not in business for the shareholder. I, I'm ultimately, and not to say I'm not in business for the shareholder. I, I, I do believe that, that, that shareholders and investors matter a lot. But at the same time, I think there's other constituencies at play, including the employees, including the business itself, and all of the tentacles and relationships, suppliers, clients, everything else that these businesses uh, are involved in. And when you think about banks, and look, the, this goes back to the too big to fail issue, the tentacles of banks are in so many different places. The, the, uh, and the banking system is so integral to our economy, as much as there are people who dislike uh, knowing that, the banking system is, is the veins, in some ways, of the business. Now, the, the banks, when the, when the economy is working, should be the backroom engine of our economy. Of course, it became the front room, and that became part of the problem. But when things are working, um, the banks do play an integral role. And so the idea of hiving one off uh, simply for the headline, I think, uh, doesn't necessarily create, create, create real value. Okay, not for the headline. What do we do? What do you want us to do as a society with, this, with these banks? And as you say, most importantly, you don't leave it with the banks. You say, let's consider major, major, major corporations, which also might be considered too big well, to well, look, whether I mean, General Motors or... Hey, look, General Mo look, we decided as a, as a country uh, that General Motors was too big to fail. We decided to save General Motors. At some level, we decided to save Chrysler. Uh, you could argue that Walmart, uh, given the number of employees it, it has, is too big to fail. Um, so where do we go? Microsoft, what have you. What's unfair about that is that there are going to be businesses, a small business, if, you, if we started a business together and, and uh, it was just us, every, nobody would have a problem indicting our little company if we were doing something crooked. Um, Again, I would go back, though, to the, to, the, to the idea that what we need to do is, to the extent that there was criminal activity that took place, you indict the person, you indict the individuals. Now, one of the problems, and I think one of the reasons that, that it has felt so unsatisfying for those people out there who are still frustrated by not only the crisis, but by the fact that um, nobody has gone to jail, is that it's not clear that true crimes were committed. Now, it feels like a, the financial crisis feels like a crime, and I see the page you're about to go to. So uh -huh. I know where you're going. And boy, boy, does the crisis 
it felt like a crime. Um, there is a distinction between criminal behavior and civil, and, and civil, civil behavior and, and civil misconduct. What I'm surprised by is not that we haven't, I, I'm surprised we haven't found criminal behavior, frankly, but what I'm really surprised by is that we have not uh, gone after individuals on a civil basis because I would think that given that the bar is lower, uh, that there would be and could have been more cases that have, have not been brought, and frankly at this point, I, I don't imagine will be brought. Well, I, I'm not so sure that you were so right when you talked about my going to the page. I'm going to the page in which you start your book by quoting Louis yep. Brandeis. Mm -hmm. Size, we are told, is not a crime, but size may at least become noxious by reason of the means through which it was attained or the uses to which it is put. Now, by noxious, you mean criminal? Well, Did he mean criminal? I don't know. I think that we have, uh, I, I think that the, the, the word criminal uh, has many different, there's a very strict definition of what criminal means in the legal context. And there's another context, which is how we feel. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's a crime. It's a crime. And, and I think I would put noxious in the, in the context of it's a crime. It, it, you know, it's a crime against humanity. It, it's, it, but but that's, that's very different. That's very different than what ultimately uh, gets people uh, into the pokey. But isn't, isn't this where, isn't Brandeis, Wilson, that whole period when we began to think in terms of things being too big and yep. antitrust, mm -hmm. wasn't that where we went on the right track and we got off that track in time? Or would you, in terms of acquisitions right. and in terms of all the merges that you've seen, and reported on in your right. lifetime of reporting. Isn't that the nature of America? Was it Brandeis' vision or I have otherwise? A I have a very complicated view. So uh, uh, full disclosure, my, my, I'm the son of a lawyer who was an antitrust litigator. Uh, so I have spent many a, a dinner table discussion talking about the world of antitrust and what it means and whether we should allow companies to come together and what it means to go from three to two and what a monopoly is and what a duopoly is um, and, and, and concentration issues. There is no question in this country, uh, both on the corporate side and specifically in the banking world, that we have consolidated. Um, and by the way, I would argue it didn't just happen in this country, it's happened all over the world. To the extent that it has in the U.S.? It is happening all over the world. And we are, we are the leader. Uh, we are a leader of this, this version of capitalism, if you will. And, and the question I think a lot of this raises, though, um, is on a global basis, what do we do about it? And the, the, reason I, the reason I say global, you know, one of the things that people say constantly to me is they say, well, let's break up the banks. And I, my, my common sense knee-jerk reaction is, sure, that sounds like a great idea. I think we should break up the banks. If the banks were smaller, if any of them went out of business, it wouldn't have the same type of ripple effect. That seems to be like a, a great idea. However, I then sometimes think to myself, and we just got back, we, we were on a trip to Asia recently, I thought to myself, there are banks in China already that are four times the size of J.P. Morgan. And what does that mean? And what does that mean to our ability as a nation to become competitive? We look at 
uh, all of these different companies and businesses and jobs that have gone overseas and the implications of being a, um, a leader in, in a particular industry, whether it be tech or uh, healthcare or, or finance or what have you. And so it's not so clear to me that simply breaking up the banks solves all your problems because in some ways it may create some other ones. I, I, and, and the other piece to that is you might say to yourself, well, what do you need the big bank for? You know, we just go to the bank to cash our checks and to uh, um, maybe go to the ATM machine now or you do it on your iPhone. But what we're really talking about is not about, about us and our relationship and getting a mortgage. What we're talking about is, is big companies, big businesses, and how they relate as clients in the same way that we do as individuals to another bank. So you may use Chase or Bank of America, I don't know who your bank is, but you've decided you want to have a relationship with them for whatever reason. General Electric says to themselves, or AT&T says to itself, I want to have a relationship with a bank. And what do I want from that bank? Well, I want a bank that I can call up on a moment's notice and they'll write me a check for $20 billion. I mean, in this new global age that we live in with, with companies as big as they are on the corporate side, they're then looking for banks that are just as ginormous who can write that one check. They don't want to have to go to, to 20 different smaller banks and say, uh, here's my cup, please, please write me a check for a billion dollars, I'm going to collect 20. Well, but doesn't that... I'm not, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but, but that's, 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 the, that's the subtext of what's happening here, and it's part of the nuance that I think often gets lost in the discussion. But doesn't that point in the direction of embracing Mr. Volcker and the Volcker rule, which you don't seem to do? You know, it's not that I don't embrace the Volcker rule. Um, I've written a couple of columns that have been critical of the Volcker rule. And in fact, I'm actually doing an interview myself with Paul Volcker on Monday. Um, my, my sense on the Volcker rule is slightly different. What I've tried to say in my columns is two things. One is that the idea that Glass-Steagall and, and the idea that that was removed and that that somehow was, is the reason we're here today and we had the crisis is a misnomer. It's a, it's a remarkable oversimplification of the multitude of problems that got us here. And this is not to apologize for Wall Street or anything else. It's just to say, you know, wherever I go, not wherever I go, but a lot of places I go, people say, Glass-Steagall, if we just had Glass-Steagall, this wouldn't have happened. That's right. And I say, and I will talk about, to you about it, there's a hundred reasons why we, we might have still gotten there and why Glass-Steagall was not the issue. And similarly, as, Volk, as the Volcker Rule has been proposed, uh, there has been a sense among some people and a view that this is, you know, manna from heaven, it's come down and it's going to fix everything. And again, I think we just need to recognize uh, what the Volcker Rule does and what it doesn't do. Uh, it is helpful. I don't want to tell you it is not. But there are, everything in life uh, has two sides to it. And, it, and all of these things and, and maneuvers and regulations, uh, many of which I am for, uh, can be double-edged swords. And I think that we have to have a discussion in this country which seems to be missing about what our true objective is right now. And the re what, what I, what, let, me just, uh, let me explain. Right now in this country, there's two things going on. On one side, we're having a conversation about how we can regulate the banks. 
That's one conversation. Let's make sure we never have another financial crisis. Important conversation that we need to have. Pivotal conversation. But there's another conversation going on in this country, too. I would actually argue that this other conversation may be more important right this moment, which is a conversation about where we are in the economy, the horrible unemployment that we're living in uh, in this country, the sense that you can't get the mortgage you want, and the sense that the banks aren't lending corporations the money they think they need, and the sense that people are not offering jobs to the people that need them too. Why are they too different? Why can't we walk down the street and chew gum at the same time? Deal with both problems. I think we can deal with both problems. It's just not clear to me that we can deal with them at the exact same time. And let me explain. If we decide that we want to break up the banks tomorrow, that may be all well and good and avoid the next financial crisis when and if we have one, and we will at some point. I'm not so clear or sure, by the way, that we're going to have a financial crisis led by the banks anytime soon. And the reason I say that is that traditionally, every banking crisis, every, every economic crisis we've really had has been a function of debt and leverage in the system. And as long as the economy remains lousy, frankly, the banks are not lending enough money to get themselves in the trouble that- Which is that, part of the problem. That would put us in this place. Right. Okay. But if you announce tomorrow that we're breaking up all the banks, I can promise you, if you think the banks aren't lending today, they re for the next two years, they really won't be lending. Um, if you announce tomorrow that we want much higher capital requirements, something I pushed for very strongly early on right after the financial crisis, with the double-edged sword being that I actually think during that the sort of two, two and a half years uh, post-crisis, things were slower in the economy than they might otherwise have been. But you know what? That was a trade-off I was willing to take. Is it a trade-off we still want to take? I think we've actually increased the capital to a point where things are much safer now. We, we're not finished. But if we want to keep going down that road, it's a road we can go down to. But I would much prefer that I get that 7.7% number on the unemployment side down to 6.5 before I start going on the other end. That, it, this is more about timing in my mind. I would love to get the banks to be uh, as, as, as uncomplicated as humanly possible. I would want to make sure they never have a, a financial crisis. But I'm also aware that there are realities, uh, which is that if you decide that you want these guys to keep more money in the bank, these guys over here can't have it. Okay, then putting those, all those thoughts together, what would you have us do as a nation? Well, nobody elected me president, but I think there's a couple things. I, I just did. Well, thank you. Um, my, my mother will like that. Um, my sense is, is we, there are a couple opportunities here. The first is that we really need to figure out how to fix the employment picture. Until we get that number fixed, get that 7.7 .7 number down to 6.5, even 6. Look, it's never going to be 4.6 was where we were. Uh, before the financial crisis, but that was Alice in Wonderland. And my great worry, by the way, is that because we'll never get back to that number, we're never going to feel like we returned. Um, and I don't know if people appreciate sort of how artificial the sort of 2006-07 period was. Nonetheless, I think the focus strictly has to be on jobs. I would be, I, I'm, I, I'm a Keynesian at some level. I would be spending money. I would be creating an infrastructure bank. I would be trying to do public and private partnerships. 
I would uh, uh, really be trying to put as much money into the system as humanly possible so that we could try to get this economy moving again. That's what I think has to happen. I think that's what the role of government is when we, when we are uh, in, a tough, in a tough spot. And I think, frankly, it's the role of business, and I think there's opportunities for them to come together and work together. Um, there's a lot we can do on the tax front um, to try not to lower taxes per se, but to try to simplify the code. And I think that would make a lot of sense both on the corporate side and on the individual side because I think it's created an enormous amount of inefficiency. And ultimately, we're going to have to deal with the long, hard, and, and very difficult issues uh, that have to deal with entitlements. And there is some, some argument to be made that if we deal with those issues, or at least we have a plan to deal with those issues, that businesses will feel more comfortable investing. You know, there's, there's over a trillion dollars in cash sitting on the sidelines because people say they feel uncertain. I'm some, you know, I, I, Warren Buffett has said a million times, we, li we always are living in uncertainty, and we maybe just have to push through it. Uh, but I, th I think it is paralyzing some, and so the question is how can we make those people feel a little less paralyzed? Um, having said that, by the way, you know, you come up with a great entitlement program or, 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 or a great plan to deal with entitlements, which effectively means ultimately on the long term lowering entitlements, that can take a hit to the economy too. You've seen, we just had the sequester. You decide you want to cut stuff, it can, it can hurt the economy. That's there real. We are. That's where we are. It's real. Um, uh, my, my sense is that, and look, I don't think Washington is prepared to have a grand bargain at all. I mean, I don't think this is a... a 30 seconds for your solution. I have 30 more seconds. Uh, you know, I, anyway, oh, I, what I would do is I would try to get a grand bargain, but the grand bargain would not start in, in a meaningful way for three or four years, again, until we can get that unemployment number down. And the grand bargain is going to hit people on both sides. It's going to be higher taxes or at least higher revenue um, and is also going to be obviously a pullback in some entitlements. And, and that unto itself would be tough for a, a, on, on all sides. Now we've got to put some flesh on that skeleton. Our time is up. You'll come back or at least stay where you are. Absolutely. And we'll continue. Andrew Rosorkin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And thanks too to you in the audience. I hope you join us next time as well. Meanwhile, as an old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now, or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other open mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash open mind.